Welcome to Change the Narrative. I'm your host, J.D. Fuller. I'm Susie Younger. An African-American licensed psychotherapist. I'm also a licensed therapist. We talk about the isms. We talk about the phobias. Anything that marginalizes and oppresses. As a white woman, I ask the questions white people are too afraid to ask. Everything we are not and everything we are is because of fear. Through a mental health lens, Susie and I will have difficult conversations with celebrity guests, political activists, and everyone in between. Our mind will tell us whatever we want to believe, but the truth lives in the body, and that's where change occurs. Are you ready to change the narrative? Our next guest, Hat Rack, must have many, many rungs. Dr. Allison Powell-Hicks, a.k.a. Dr. Alley, has her PhD in clinical psychology. She is the host of Discovery Plus and owns TV show that she hosts with her mother, that's so cool, Dr. Cynthia aptly named like mother, like daughter. From self-worth to anxiety to self-doubt, Dr. Ali has the solution. This entrepreneur is a media personality and the creator of one of the coolest card decks called Do, D-O-U-X, Do. A consultant, a coach, a mental health expert, brand strategist, she helps others and shifts their perspective, aligning with their true purpose and building confidence. There's so much more I could say, but I'm going to go let JD take it from here. Welcome. Listen, I need a copy. Is this my bio? Is this who I am? That is. Oh who my God. That is. It is you, and it is what she does. So there you have it. Thank you. <laughs> so. Dr. Ali, I know you are super busy and you are blowing up everywhere. So I just want to thank you so much for being willing to come on the show and have a conversation with us. It means a lot to me, really, sincerely. Thank you. Of course, I'm so, so thankful to be here. Excited. Can't wait to talk to your audience. Excellent. So give us the highlights. Who was Allison Powell before she became Dr. Ali? Oh, the length of the story I could tell. Oh, my God. Dr. Ali, you're too young for that story to be that long. No, I think it is all lies. Um, I use lots of retin-A, but like, you know, getting a PhD <laughs> took me eight years. Like a girl has grown, okay? Like, <laughs> yeah. yes, <laughs> respect. Yeah, it's the retin-A and, you know, I'm getting these little, yeah. So I am an African-American cisgendered female um, woman raised here in Southern California. I am one of those mysterious unicorn locals that you meet walking the streets of SoCal, but I'm from Orange County. And so I think with that comes a kind of beautiful intersectional story. Um, Anyone from Southern California knows that like Orange County is referred to as like living behind the orange curtain. That's what I used to say all the time when I lived there. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And so I I think I was really privileged to be born and raised in a family of really high performing people. My father was a doctor, he passed away in 2020. My mother has a PhD in clinical psychology and my grandfather was a medical doctor. My other grandfather was like a colonel in the army. And so I had a lot of people to look up to. And so because I am just so counterculture, I found a way to fight against all of that as much as I possibly could. And I (laughs) was a massive rebel. I was given so many opportunities and would sometimes be like, I don't want to do that. I want to be this. I want to do all these other things. I think that's one thing that I have always kind of appreciated about like young Allison. When I look back on her was that she was always so brave and Mm -hmm. 
capable of making her own decisions at such a really young age. And now time has kind of like made me a little more cautious. <laughs> Sure. But so that's, that's kind of, yeah. So that's like one of the routes. That's one of the routes kind of of how I got here. I went to college in Alabama. I uh, went to an HBCU that is also HBCU. like Seventh-day Adventist. HBU. Um, uh, it's also a Seventh-day Adventist HBCU, the only one of its kind. Wow. And uh, called Oakwood University. And then, yeah, yeah, like we squeaked in there in the HBCU time and okay. they threw a whole bunch of Jesus on top. <laughs> a whole bunch of Jesus. I think there's like something like if you go there, you are like two course credits away from having a minor in religion because like you're required to take so many religion courses. So how did a rebel make that choice? I didn't make the choice. The family chose and I was kind of forced to just be a part of it. And then I went to get my PhD and my master's in a combined program at Loma Linda University, which is also a Seventh-day Adventist school. And that was here in California. So, so okay, a couple of, number one, behind the orange curtain, I get that. Susie, the, the, the crew and Susie are in Southern Cal and I lived there for 20 years. So behind the orange curtain, we know that very well. <laughs> in terms of a high-performing family, I don't know. I just have a reaction to anybody from the global majority using the word privilege. I think that you had access based in hard work and in spite of the barriers, um, they managed to create opportunities that were not handed to them. Therefore, that is not privilege. You're right. Thank you. Respect for that. Thank you. You're right, because they're all Black. And in spite of every systemic challenge that they faced, they, my ancestors fought hard and made and created really beautiful spaces for themselves, their kids, and subsequently me. And I appreciate their sacrifice, their hours of hard work. Like it's, it's really amazing when I look at some of the things that they did, when I think about how difficult my life is now and like the two thousands as compared to their lives, then I'm like, my goodness, like that's, so that's a great perspective. Like the things that they went through were, uh, seemed insurmountable. You know, and I think it's the reason why the generation that came before us, and by us, I mean me, many more years ago, it's so incredible how both they don't have the tolerance for conversations about systemic racism sort of consistently, but also, you know, it lives in their body, you know, it's there. And right. So it's just so deep because it's like I want to I want to have, uh, you know, my oldest sister, I want to sit down, I want to talk about it. And I and at the same time, I totally understand, like, you got no time for that. You mm-hmm. got here and, yeah. and this is where you are. I want to be there, you know? Yeah. And I also think there was so much shame built into it because it was something Absolutely. so outside of our control that we began to internalize that narrative that white America had had projected onto us that like something was wrong with us. Right. And the fact that you see everyone who looks like you, who's in a similar situation of struggle, it's like that that internalized kind of like self-hate can build Mm -hmm. up. And and I think that that's what may have added to a lot of the shame that past generations have felt. And I think now we are able to kind of see because of social media and because the access that we have to a worldwide population of people of color, we're kind of able to see like, oh, wait, this happened to you, too. Wait, you, too. Right. What? Wait. It's not just me. Exactly. That gaslighting was real. <laughs> it's it's no longer our thing. It's it's the it's theirs. And that feels mm-hmm. validating for each other. 
you know, and yeah. ourselves. So, you know, you have, she, I'm going to get this right. She conquers who conquers herself on your website. Did I say that correctly? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Talk about that. Listen, I fell in love with that statement because I've always been a little bit of a linguist. I like to use all the words and I don't know, maybe in a past life I was like Latin or Greek or something, but, um, yeah, so the, it's a Latin phrase, wink it, quisi, wink it. And, um, it's always stood out to me because, so she conquers who conquers herself, because it could also mean he conquers who conquers himself because the pronouns were a little different when you, when you look at, um, some older Latin and um, I'm not a linguist, by the way, but I just Googled it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> but um, so what it means to me is that as we learn to control and understand self, we can begin to control and understand the world around us. And so a lot of the work that I do, whether it be with individual clients, whether it be with clients on television shows, with businesses that I work with and anything that I do, I am always geared to improving a person's understanding of who they are and how they function. Like, I can't sit down and tell you like, okay, if you do these three things, you'll be successful because everybody's different. And so Mm -hmm. I really try to dive into the individual to help guide them on their own path, right? It's not about my path. It's not about what I want you to do. It's about your natural tendencies, your natural drive, where you're supposed to go. And I'm just here to kind of guide you with some theory some concepts, some of the things that I've gleaned through a lifetime of, you know, reading and experiencing to help you get to your purpose and where you're supposed to be. Even when I'm working with couples, it's hard to have a truly healthy relationship if you don't have two individuals that are truly individually healthy. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, She Conquers Who Conquers Herself is about tapping into self and specifically for people, uh, women, women of color, I've noticed there's this distance that we've had to our own intuition that over the course of of a lifetime, if anyone, male, female, and and everybody else, we lose touch with our own sense of kind of like what is right, what is wrong, what is north, what is south, what is east, what is west, because society begins to tell us like, no, you shouldn't do that, or no, you shouldn't do this, or this is the way you're supposed to go. And so my goal has always been to help people reintegrate with their own intuition and their own inner voice. I want to put a slight twist on it and, and have you dig a little bit deeper. You know, we, from the global majority are a collective system. We operate collectively. It's not individualistic. There's not a lot of individualization Mm -hmm. going on and the households. So how do you, how do you tie that together? You know, your individual self, but from a collective perspective, it's like people who are from families who immigrate, you know, Mm -hmm. there's such a, a push to assimilate and to forget about your country of origin, or at least to put it on the side. And my work is all about helping the full integration of parts mm-hmm. of self. And so I hear that that's what you're saying. I just want you to lay that out a little bit more. because You're not talking about people forgetting about, you know, the collectivity that brought them here. You're not talking about that. Right. Mm-hmm. So can you say a little bit more about that? Absolutely. I think it's a really good distinction. And I'm not speaking of individualism as in like the kind of classic Eurocentric idea of taking on my own identity and going out into the world and pretending like I did something on my own somehow, but it's of becoming the best version of yourself so that you can connect with the collective. Because truly when we look at the psychology of it, 
humans have evolved, whether you believe, whatever you believe about that, but humans have evolved to need connection. It's not that connection is just the way that we do things. We actually need it. We've evolved frontal lobes and mirror neurons to connect. And so I feel like one of working on self is a way to fundamentally allow yourself to connect better with others. And to me is a mechanism of learning to connect. So figuring out your role. Like when we talk about, I was just on a show called Profiled the Black Man on OWN. Um, The executive producer was Tina Knowles. And one of the episodes was on the myth of fatherlessness, that the the, the missing black male and the father and the the family, right? Right. And so the perspective is you can be more present if you are capable of being more comfortable with self, right? If you are, for example, for black men, one of the reasons we whenever, if you don't see black men in a family, because I mean, we know that's a myth, it's not always the case, Mm -hmm. but there's systemic societal reasons for that. Right. And so as we begin to heal society, we heal the individual. And as we heal the individual, we heal society again. It's this reflective co-creation. And so I feel like as we begin to heal individuals from the wounds that we experience, then we will therefore be present for our families because we can physically be there, but not be there. Right. Because of the things we're going through. And so absolutely. So I'm really glad that you brought that, um, that perspective up because it is about healing self so that you can become a part of the collective an active, functioning, useful, beneficial part of the collective. Yeah. I mean, look, it's been used, it's been used against us, this idea that we have to be individualistic and we have to assimilate and we have to join in something that doesn't represent us. So I really appreciate you being able to delve in that a little bit more and, and clarify that because that's immediately where people, people's minds go. They just want to look at us individually as opposed to a people. We are a people. We're stronger together. We're stronger together. And we have to heal collectively and individually in order to get there because we have individual wounds and then we have society, like cultural wounds that our Absolutely. full group is dealing with. And so there are levels to the trauma in our community. Like I was sitting down with my own therapist and she does EMDR. Are you familiar with EMDR? Yeah. Amazing. So eye movement resensitization, desensitization. So with EMDR, you are focusing on, you know, a trauma that happened in your life and you're kind of like sitting there and meditating through it and focusing on it and breathing through it so that you can kind of like desensitize yourself to the experience. And she was talking about how in, in uh, communities of color, specifically African-American community, there are so many layers of trauma that clients come to her with that it takes a little longer for some people of color to, to kind of get through EMDR. And that was just her experience, but it made so much sense to me that there are so many layers of trauma that we've experienced and it takes a while to kind of process it. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it absolutely makes sense. I mean, I've done, I'm I'm working on a project with a friend of mine, a Jewish friend, and we were looking at intergenerational trauma, both from the Jewish lens and from the African-American lens. And it's, so it's, you know, it's an interesting uh, concept and idea. And in one of the sessions I did with her, it was so interesting that a sense of urgency emerged on my left side and just mm-hmm. past uh, um, exhaustion and sadness on the other side. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it was so fascinating to see those emerge um, at the same time, you know, because this idea that we have a sense of urgency collectively, but we also have a sense of exhaustion. I mean, when people say black people are tired, you know, we're not just talking sleepy tired. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? We are talking generational tiredness. And so I I like what you're saying about the layers, because that's so important for people to understand. This is why cross-cultural therapy is so um, potentially re-traumatizing for us, 
because they want to come in and talk to us about this, right? From that Eurocentric lens and not talk about this because that takes responsibility and discomfort. So that's what I, you know, I really push clinicians. Are you about to get me in trouble? Are you about to get me in trouble today? I hope so. I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Because I mean, there's a lot of conversation within the, these halls of psychology and halls of academia about true cultural competency. What is cultural competency? And the, obviously the journey is never over, right? We never really get to, you know, the, the promised land. We're always traversing. But right now there's conversations about decolonizing mental health and about how mental health has been founded in white male, the image of white maleness. And what we're seeing is anything that has historically deviated from white maleness runs the risk of being pathologized and of being diagnosed and turned into something that is anti. And part of the battle that I've been having personally is with how difficult it is for some of these organizations to kind of stand up and say, is it that folks of color are actually experiencing more of blank diagnoses, right? Cause you can, there's so many different, you know, diagnoses so that people of color experience more than other people. Is it that they're truly experiencing more of this or is it that they've been forced to live in a sick system, mm. which causes mm. illness? Wait, wait, you, you have to breach. I need you to take it home. I well, <laughs> So are we, truly diagnosing something that is wrong that we can actually heal in a person or is it that we are in a way penalizing a person for not fitting a sick system and we don't want to diagnose the system because I as a clinician might be a part of the system that is sick that's it that's it Mm. that is it exactly I I cannot co-sign on that with any heavier ink if I tried I mean, that is exactly what I talk about in, uh, you know, I teach graduate students and I also teach at the uh, Psychoanalytic Institute out there. And I just do, they they give me five sessions to go in hard, going hard, five sessions on this idea of anti-Black, you know, anti-Black racism and what that means clinically into their professional practice. And the same thing with graduate students. I mean, I I come into class and say, look, I got to tell you right now, I'm not for everybody. And I teach through my blackness. And that's just, that's a shift in mindset when you put that out there. And I just love how you, how you laid that out there. That's it exactly. Because it's physician heal thyself. While you're trying to tell me what's wrong with me, you might want to look back and see what you brought in to the room from your ancestors. Because that's, that's the real problem. That's the dilemma. You know, APA gave out that statement, the apology for uh, racism. So APA meaning uh, American Psychological Association, because the American Psychiatric Association apologized a little earlier than the American Psychological Association did, um, apologizing for racism and the structure uh, with which basically the way APA had pathologized certain groups, like, for example, the diagnosis of drapetomania, which was a diagnosis for slaves that did not want to be slaves anymore. The APA had a diagnosis which stated that something was mentally wrong with them because, of course, from their perspective, the state of blackness was inherent servitude. And if they did not want to be in service, then something was wrong. And that was a diagnosis that was in, you know, I'm not sure if it was in an actual DSM because this might've predated um, right. actual DSMs, but they, they made an informal apology and then gave a list of historical context to add to it um, on, you know, how like one of the founders of APA Cattell founded the word, uh, coined the term eugenics. Mm. And so these are conversations that we need to have. And, and then ABSI, the Association of Black Psychologists, rebuttaled 
with a statement that was basically say it with chess, you know, like you guys are yeah. talking great, but what are you doing? And exactly. then they laid out some exactly. of the statistics and I realized, yo, am I part of these statistics? Mm-hmm. I always thought that I was a more of a black psychologist. And then I realized that I was never taught any theories or research of black psychologists in grad school, zero, zero black psychologists, zero. So now I'm in a space where I've actually taken a little bit of a break because I'm like, I have to dive in to my own decolonization and Mm. understand and kind of like start almost at like ground zero. (laughs) Yeah, I hear you. And restructure. And and that's, um, and so ABCI has been a wonderful place for me to be while I'm doing that. I love it. I love the rediscovery of self through the lens of blackness. Right on. That's perfect. (laughs) Yes. All right. Let's shift gears a little bit. Um, Let's talk about the black woman, black mother, the sister, the daughter. What comes to mind when I say all of that? I just see a lady who does it all, who is both freed and trapped by her strengths. Um, because I think that there is a freedom in being strong and independent with that with a lot of other women from other ethnic groups might not experience, but then there is a heaviness and isolation that can come with having to be all for everyone because it's hard to be something for yourself when you're everything for everybody. So I feel like it's a very double-edged sword. It absolutely is. I just had to breathe that out. I felt that, you know, and, and, it, and it comes with such a stereotype, uh, you know, like instead of saying, um, we are survivors and we have survived. It comes with the label of being difficult, you know, and angry. That doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. They'll, they'll you know, talk trauma all day as long as your skin isn't brown and then you turn and then it becomes mm-hmm. anger. And that's just so, so damaging to who we are as a people and to each other. Because what does that do to us relationally in relationship with each other? It teaches right? us that we don't have the right to experience anger. And that we have to push away our own anger or we will be deemed as the, you know, angry black woman who's, you know, too much for everyone. And all right. But it's like, why can't I express myself in an authentic way and be heard? Mm -hmm. Because a part of what you see is when people enter into spaces of rage, it's because they have their anger has been denied. And so when no one listens to your, your righteous anger, when you're able to say like, Hey boss, I don't like that blankety blankety blank happened. Can we address it? Well, when you don't address a reasonable anger response, then people start to feel trapped and at their wits end. And that's when you can have someone who's just at a point who's like, F this. I mean, I don't know how much I can cuss here. I've been trying to be really polite. Yeah, all, all you want, all you want. <laughs> okay. But like, and you get to a point where it's like, fuck this. And I think what happens in our community, it's not just one, like I was saying earlier with like EMDR and the experiences earlier, it's not just one thing. It's death by a thousand cuts in our society. It's hundreds of hundreds of years of systemic that. racism. It's, it's, you know, being isolated from neighborhoods, kept out of voting, kept out of, you know, personhood, removed. It's, it's just, it's a thousand things that have happened that lead to this one moment where you scream at your boss, maybe. And then we're the ones It's like, oh, something, mm-hmm. That girl, she's just out of control. No, she's stressed. She's traumatized. She's having to carry the weight of the world on her shoulders. And she came to you and you did not listen to her. So she had to do something to make sure you listened. And now you're judging her for it. I don't like it. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's like, you know, it's the volcano. It's the, the, you know, the boxes that are stacked up. You stack it too high, it's going to fall. It's the child who doesn't have the language or the permission. You know, we have the language, but not the permission. 
You know, that's the problem. It's like you got to be able to put it together. And as clinicians who are sitting with their own, you know, fragility in the room, I don't want to talk about microaggressions because microaggressions aren't a thing. Like you said, thousand cuts. That, that's that's a massive wound. <laughs> There's nothing micro about that. So I think it's just so important to challenge it all in the ways that you are and hopefully I am and we are together. I think it's really important. Well, I'm liking this movement towards more openness, even, you know, cross-culturally. It's like, you know, I'll be in some meetings with people of multiple ethnicities and everyone will be really open and honest about their experience, their, you know, privileges or their perspectives. I don't know. I just think we're moving in a better direction where at least we can start the conversations now. And because that's one of the things that we learned in, you know, in grad school when they were talking about cultural competency, have a conversation, at least have a conversation. And for some people, it's very scary to do that, but I'm wanting to empower people that not talking about it can be more detrimental than just saying, I don't know the answers to everything. You know, what are your pronouns? How do you identify do you primarily identify is, is race a part of your identification is ethnicity is culture is your, do you identify with just your region or is it about your gender identity or your, you know, there's so many different ways that we can identify. And I think the more that we get to know people, the better we will be at starting to make these adjustments because even looking at the black community, we are so diverse. Right. <laughs> like We are not a monolith. And so there's so many conversations that we could be having to really understand everyone's true intersection. Absolutely. I agree with that completely. So let's talk about the show. How did you come up with the concept? Like mother, like daughter. Listen, I didn't even come up with a concept. They came to me. They came to me. I did tell them though. I was like, you know, I have a mom that has a PhD, right? (laughs) But yeah, they came up with it and um, reached out to me because I've done a few different shows for different networks. And I've kind of found like a really wonderful home at own. I, I was doing a show, I'm not sure if you've seen it, called Family or Fiance. And that's also yeah. at own. And so I've appeared on a few episodes of that and really, I mean, literally love them. I just so much. I, I just can't even comment enough on how much how wonderful everybody is over there. And so that. when I saw this opportunity, I was like, you know, let me let me shimmy my way in here. And I, I guess they liked it. <laughs> I love that. And so just so everyone knows, who is the target audience? So the target audience is the own viewership, which is African-American women, typically between like the ages of maybe like 35 and like 55. These are, I I mean, I feel like they're pretty like boss babes. Like they're they're smart, they're with it, they're capable, they're driven. And I feel like there's a a beautiful level of self-reflection because I think in order to watch something like, like mother, like daughter, you have to be able to reflect. And I get a lot of people reaching out to me saying exactly that. Like, oh, as I was watching your show, you and your mom were working with this mother-daughter duo or that duo. It got me thinking about my own family and my own mom. Mm -hmm. And I think being able to turn that eye inward is something that I do see of our audience a lot. Yeah. You know, I I always refer to whether I'm teaching or in session, um, my mother, myself. And I don't know if Mm. you remember that book. It's such a great book that helped me a lot, um, particularly in my my mother's aging process. And you know, eventually she passed. But this idea of recognizing parts of yourself that you can keep from your mother, and also those you can you can let go because they're your mother's. So I like that concept of seeing it, appreciating, acknowledging it, and also you don't have to keep it if it's not yours. So I, I think it's great. It reminds me of kind of this idea of not being sticky. I think Marsha Lanahan kind of talked a little bit about stickiness and DBT, 
this I, I being Teflon, you know, being like a duck and allowing yes. some of these things to kind of roll off of us as opposed to holding on to everything. And, you know, this right. idea that there's things that my mother gave to me, showed me some of them I love and I'm going to hold on to forever. And some I'm like, gonna let that one roll let that one roll give that back let her keep that that's great well it sounds wonderful i'm super excited for you and mom or i should say and dr mom Mom. Uh, sure i'm gonna give her props talk about the do you deck i love that idea oh my god i was thinking about it this morning and like getting all emotional like I literally wrote it for myself. So during the, in the, I wrote it in the beginning of the pandemic. So it was like, literally like, I want to say it was right before my father passed away. So this was like maybe May, 2020, he passed away in June. And so we had had a few months of the pandemic. I'm sorry. Yeah. It, it's, you know, it's all, it's been a, it's been a hard time. It's been a, a very strange time, but I feel strangely connected to all of the other people who have all lost something, but I'm so I, I stayed up one night because I was, yeah, because I'm I'm not an anxious person. Okay. If you couldn't tell, I'm a little like eh, high energy. Yeah. <laughs> and that manifests as 20,000 thoughts and all taking me in the direction of doom. And <laughs> everything ends in doom for me. So the pandemic has not been a great time. I've always been a little bit of a germ a phobe person. And so this has been like literally my worst nightmare. So I was up one night being panicked um, in the beginning and I was just like up. And so I was like, you know what? Let me write to myself all the things that would help me to process and to align with my own courage. So they were originally called the courage deck, like the courage cards. And it was Mm -hmm. all these interventions that I had learned over the course of my life or interventions that I like like had had other people teach me or like my, my therapist and maybe use with me or my coaches or my strategist. And so it was all these things that I, I, I had used in the past. And so I wrote them all down and I dived into, dove into some research, you know, so it's all evidence-based and it was really just personal for me. And then I sat down with my literary agent and I was like, do you think I can make this into a book? And she was like, eh, I don't know. And we ended up going with another book idea. I don't, I never try to push anything. And so I was like, you know what? I think that this like workbook that I made for myself would be really effective as a card deck, just something you can pull out. You can like, just pull them at random. You read what they say and you do what the card tells you to do. And Mm -hmm. they're broken down into three types of cards. There's meditate cards, there's journal cards, and there's do cards. So meditate cards, obviously you read it and then you sit quietly with yourself, reconnect with your intuition and you meditate on the idea. Then the journal cards, you sit, you, I do like a level of meditation into everything, but, um, and then mm-hmm. you write, you write it out, you process it. And then the do cards are all about action. They're about getting out into the world, getting out and doing something that the card has asked you to do. And I've so far had some really great feedback. Like they're super new. I obviously gave them out like a lot of my friends and I'm getting some feedback from people. And even before I got the actual cards made, I had people like going over all the content and like seeing how it resonated with them. And I've been getting some really great feedback. So I'm really excited about it. Oh, that's super exciting. And I said this last week, you know, the pandemic has destroyed us in so many ways and and required us to reinvent ourselves. And I so appreciate the idea of helping people in many ways. You know, a lot of people can't get themselves to therapy, but if they can get this deck and figure out how to get them, if they can use it to get themselves to therapy or they can use it to get themselves to the next level. You know, it's just any, any way you can, by any means necessary. That, that's what I believe right now to get it back together. 
Thank you. I love that you saw that. And, and that, that is one of my true purposes in um, my division of EPA. We talk about giving psychology away for free. And that is my job. That is what I think I am here to do. That's why I do TV because I know there's no way I'm going to be able to get enough people in my office ever in my life without literally right. burning myself into a hole in the ground, right? Exactly. And so I've kind of shied away from doing some of the individual work. And now it's about how do I get this evidence-based information through a lens of blackness, through a lens of intersectionality, through a lens of spirit, and give it to as many people as possible. Because therapy is hard to come by for a lot of people too. It's like, it's not easy to find a therapist. And and then when you do find one, you know, there's the dating process with your therapist, right? Of finding like the right right one. And that's a beautiful process. But what do we do in the interim? While we're finding that great clinician that really works with us, while we're working with our insurance company, while we're getting that, that fit, what do we do? And so I'm hoping that some of the things that I produce can create kind of that bridge. Yeah, absolutely. It feels like it feels like a stepping stone mm-hmm. to helping people get out of their own way and figure out, you know, how to get the help they need. If and it and it may be all the help they need to to move forward. So I think it's wonderful. Congratulations. Thank you. We, we invite we invite cats on the show as well. Animals. <laughs> Blessed we're cats. We're very animal family here. <laughs> I have a whole lot of theories so, about cats. I love them. Oh, oh spiritual. Man. Listen, I'm I'm woo woo. I'm very woo woo. I'm trying to be like. So are we? <laughs> yeah, no, we're, we're all we're all about that. <laughs> we support that. Um, before I before I uh, throw it to Susie to to get you to fill out a couple of phrases, um, or finish a couple of phrases, and you've kind of answered this. I just want to give you another another uh, jab at it, if you will. So the coaching, the consultation. I mean, you're a clinical expert. We can go on and on with all of the hats you wear, as Susie said in the beginning. How do you stay grounded? in this multicultural focus, how do you continue to adjust that multicultural lens so that it speaks to as many people as possible? And as I've said, you've kind of said it, but I want to give you another chance to elaborate. Yeah, well, you know, interestingly enough, on a, on a spiritual woo-woo level, I had this kind of awakening that if we are to believe that we are spiritual beings, like this body is but one iteration of who I am right? And it's one component of who I am. And so when it comes to maintaining this multicultural perspective, I just, I just realized that like, I'm leaning into this reality, right? I'm leaning into the, the black American diaspora femaleness of it all. And also keeping an eye to the fact that who knows who I might've been before or who, who I might be in the future. And I fully identify as who I am, but then realize that we all have the same needs. We all have the same goals. And I always try to keep a mind of curiosity when I'm working with somebody from any culture, because just because we might both look like we're black or be from the same group in the United States, we have different ethnic groups that we are a part of, whether we know them or not. We have different cultures that we are a part of, different regions, different religions. And I always work to keep an open mind and a heart full of compassion and empathy. Um, mm-hmm. Because no matter where someone's coming from, they have this, we have the same drives. We want to be loved. We want like unconditionally, right. We want to be heard and we want to be safe and we want to be able to create safety and, and love for those around us. 
And we might, we go about getting it in different ways. And so for me to kind of like keep that focus on multiculturalism is to keep a focus on the human in front of me and to mm. realize that we all come, we are living this life in this body, but we are spiritual beings that exist beyond. And I want to always honor the being and, and be as present for that being as possible and not get even lost in the physical identity because just because I see something doesn't mean that is true or accurate. And I think that that's also some of the colonialism that we have to remove is this idea mm. that we know anything that I, I the, this idea that I have some truth for you, right? I know the truth. I don't know anything. I, I know knowledge of mental health and human behavior but all of that information, none of it might be helpful for the person in front of me if I don't learn how to be curious and humble and to sit back and allow this individual to take me on their journey so that I can figure out kind of like where we can intersect and, and kind of co-create and work together to create the life that they want. So you just, you just triggered a couple of things to me. One is that I'd like to put it out there that I do not want to come back again. This was very exhausting. I'm You're like, I'm done. To- <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to check this living thing off. When it's when it's my time, and and, and the second thing is that you you know what you're saying reminds me of when I had my friend Kevin on, and you know he's been through quite the journey, and he talks about this whole idea of spirituality and attachment, and how that's helped him get through his process because that's what I hear when you talk about mm-hmm. you know being so gripped you know gripped to something that that isn't necessarily the reality it's just what it is now so that's just yeah. you're cool you have a lot to say and i know i promised you 40 minutes but i lied okay you kept me longer and uh and so and, and we're still not going <laughs> to let you go cuz we have a couple of phrases we'd like to throw at okay let's do it so Susan, i'm going to let you pick uh probably like 3 to see that are the best so i can at least stay as close to the time as i promised okay i'm going to call this jd's jigsaw and so the <laughs> puzzle that you have to fill in is one word. Okay. So I think the challenge in our country is. Can't fill out one word. I'll give you a few words. One, that's impossible. A few. One, a few. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's impossible. Okay. Yeah. Well, cause well, first of all, so when you said it, my first thought, one word, individualism. Mm. Mm. You killed that. You, you killed did. that. <laughs> <laughs> Multiple words was lack of empathy. Woo. Oh, that's good. That is dope. Okay. The one thing I don't share publicly is we need some music. My relationship, my, my, my partner, I don't talk as much about my relationship with my partner. Nice. I know. I knew that. Was, I knew that. I knew yeah, that was going to be the answer. I, I can feel I that too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the last one, if I had one superpower, what would it be? Reading minds. Ooh. <laughs> Don't we do that? <laughs> Don't we do that already? <laughs> that's what our friends, that's what our friends and family think. <laughs> I'm like, no, I read your micro expressions because as you know, psychologists, we are very we understand what all the little movements mean. <laughs> exactly. You don't have to say a word. We know it. Dr. Ali, thank you so much 
for coming on the show. You know, I've been following you for a bit now. I get super excited about everything you're doing. I value you. I appreciate you. I want everything to blow up even more than it is. And I'm going to beg you not to forget about me so I can have you come back again and we can chop it up because this was so great. <laughs> oh, of course. I'll be back. Don't even worry about it. Thank you. Thank right you. JD and I want to thank our fabulous producers at I Am Music Group. And for all of you out there who want to do your own podcast, go to IamMusicGroup.com and the team will hit you back. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And also, leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Thank you for listening to Change the Narrative with JD Fuller.